Let's pray together. Father, we, we do praise you. You are the one who has paid our debt. You've raised our lives up from the dead. You've given us new life in you. Lord, we thank you. And Jesus, we, we ask that in this time as we look into your word, Lord, we believe it's true. And Lord, we desire not only to praise you for the redemption you've given, but Lord, would you continually transform our lives to look more and more like you. Help us to wrap our lives around your truth and live it out in the day-to-day of our lives. And so this morning, we just say to you, we believe your word is true. Teach us from it today. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you will, turn with me to Matthew or something. Mark, not Matthew. Uh, whatever. I did that last service. I was like, uh, it's like my mom. She would yell at us, boys. She'd be like, Steve, Mark, Craig, Ryan. Like, she'd go through all the list. And said, so, Matthew. Yeah, Matthew. What am I doing? What's happening? My mic just fell off. So, all right. We're just going to talk now. So, um, Mark. Um, we're in Mark chapter 6, um, verse 14 through 29. Uh, Mark 6, 14 through 29. So in this passage, as we read it today, um, it's on John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, and this is a unique section in the book of Mark, um, but as, as I was reading it and, and thinking about it, you know, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a compelling text. Think about it like this. In our life, and as we read the scriptures, and as we know stories of the faith, um, what is it that we know about these men, these women, who lived their lives for Jesus? As we read them in the scriptures, they were brave, right? They, they had a bravery about them that is compelling. They, they were willing, willing, it seems as though at any cost, to live their life for the one they loved. They, they were people in the scriptures that they were raw and they were humble. They didn't look like everybody else yet they were significantly used by God. They didn't mold themselves into culture, but it seems at times they molded culture into looking more and more like God. And sometimes culture wouldn't mold at all and would come against them so hard that they'd lose their very own lives. When we read the scriptures, and even when we look at sections like Hebrews, there's the great hall of faith, right? These great men, great people who gave their life for the sake of the kingdom. And he writes over and over about these men and women through the text, right, that have done these great things for the Lord. And then we look at our own lives. And some, for some reason, we make a disconnect. We say, well, that was that way for them. But for us today, there's a much more sophisticated approach to this thing called faith. There's, there's a much more... Um, uh, sophisticated way. There's, there's, a, there's a way to embrace safety and security, but we're just going to still try to maintain faith and life in him. And what's funny is when I look around and I see the brave people in text, and I'm not saying that the brave people don't exist today, but it seems like we've almost bought into a different kind of faith. A faith that, that doesn't have a lot of cost, just has a lot of gain. It doesn't 
mean that I have to put my life out there. It just means that I have to trust my life to him and then live how I want, and one day I'll get to be with him forever. It's this kind of dual role where he gets to be Lord of my salvation, and I get to be Lord of my life. That he gets to be Lord when it comes to the hard things, when life isn't dealing me the cards I want. But in the good times, I just get to rock and roll and do my thing. See, it seems that when Jesus is talking about this thing called life and faith, this thing called the everyday of those who trust him, he says there's a new way, a new system, a new destiny, and at all costs, and we see this for Mark, Peter, John the Baptist, those that are really deeply connected to the writings of this text, of this, this book. But I think even for you and for me, we can live a life of faith, or we can live a life, and maybe this is a strong word, We can live a life of cowardice. Faith looks like taking risks by faith for the sake of the kingdom in all places, public, private, and sacred. A life of cowardice looks like self-protection and religious hiding in public, private, and sacred. The differences we'll see in two men in the text we'll read today. We see John the Baptist, who was a man that I think we'll all agree by the time we're done today that John the Baptist was a man who was humble and who was daring. And we'll see Herod. Now, Herod, there's like a thousand Herods. Like, Herod had ten wives, and he named all of his children Herodias or Herod, right? And so in history, there are gobs of Herods. And so this is one Herod that we'll read about today who really had control of a quarter of the Roman Empire. And in this, we'll see this Herod was a man of indulgence and cowardice. And in this, we'll see maybe two things, a life that, maybe two things, lives that are kind of pinned up against each other. And it's a life of risk. It's a life of safety. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, am I living a life of safety or am I living a life of risk? Now, just so everyone, like, we're really, really clear. John the Baptist and Herod both had a great risk to their life. Everybody in this room is living with great risk in their life. Because there is a price paid. Herod is going to pay the price, did pay the price for Herod's life. And John the Baptist paid a price for his life. I'd submit to you today that John the Baptist, although in the text he's going to give his life, he's going to be beheaded. And Herod is going to live a life. He's actually going to be an egomaniac and neurotic most of his life, especially after John the Baptist is beheaded. I would say to you that John the Baptist lived at peace in this world and went at home to be at peace with his God. Herod lived in torment in this world. And forever will rest in torment the rest of time, for all of, the time, for all of time and eternity. There is a price to be paid. And the question is, which price are you willing to pay? Because everyone, including us, will pay a price for our lives. And the question is, what price will we pay? And no one can really answer that but you and God. And so today, let's read the text, and what we're going to do, we're going to read a little bit different, and so we're going to read sections of the text, and then we'll, we'll dig into them together. 
And so we're going to read first 14 through 16, which reads, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So here's what's going on a little bit in this text. It's going to be, you know, it's kind of like one of those moments in a movie where it sets it up like there's, we're, we're way into the future. And so we're kind of way in the future. And what's going to happen as Mark writes this is he's going to flash back after this section to the beheading of John the Baptist. And so the setup, this is after John has been beheaded. So we're in the context, Jesus has been healing. He's been He's kind of on this last part of a missionary journey. He's sent the disciples out. There's healings. There's miracles. Demons are being cast out. There's legend of Jesus growing and growing and growing in the region. And Herod hears about this. And he goes, what if this is John the Baptist? What if this is the guy I killed? Now, what we'll see in a moment is John the Baptist and Herod spent some time together. John the Baptist and Herod, as they spent time together, Herod realized that this was a holy man. That there was something strangely different. And Herod will go against his conscience for a girl. And what will happen is that he will have to deal with the ramifications of going against the will of God and going against his own conscience. And in this, he is a, so Herod again, he's a neurotic egomaniac. He had killed John the Baptist but was living in fear because he knew he had wronged a holy man. He felt the guilt of the wrong that he had done. And that's why this is this flashback of what if this thing that I've done is coming back now to bite me? So why? Well, so here's what's going on. Interesting in the book of Mark, there's only two sections that aren't about Jesus. Mark 1, 4 through 8 is about John the Baptist. And this section that we'll read today, 6, 14 through 29, is about John the Baptist. Everything else in the book of Mark is about Jesus. This is what Jesus did. And then immediately Jesus did this. And Jesus did this. And this is what Jesus said. Everything in the book of Mark is going to be about Jesus except these two sections. And it's kind of peculiar that it's found in the kind of where this is tucked inside of this. Now, um, remember a little bit about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, he was born to elderly parents. And so being born to elderly parents, John the Baptist was miraculous from the beginning. But even when John the Baptist was kind of in utero, right, he's in the womb, his mom goes by, Jesus, by, by, by Mary, and all of a sudden what happens? He leapt, it says, in his mother's womb. So before, like if you, you're like, I've been going to church since I was born. Well, John the Baptist has us all beat because he like knew Jesus before he was born, right? I mean, he leapt, he recognized, and this is something significant about the person of John the Baptist. He recognized Jesus, and he will be the one, even in the womb, that recognized Jesus. And he was a prophet that was, going, that was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And so, so we see, remember that, so he's born, he's born to other parents, he leaps his mother, and then he prepared the way of his ministry. And when Jesus came along, he looked, and he saw Jesus, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He recognized that the Savior, that the one that would atone for sins... He was here. He was present. And this one that came to save, he, he pointed him out to others. And so John the Baptist had all these disciples, all these people that were following him. He said, whoa, stop following me. Jesus is here. Start following him. And in that minute when he turned everyone's eyes, he said, start following the Lord. Start following the Savior. The Savior says, hey, John, I want you to baptize me. 
And John the Baptist says, no way. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And then Jesus says, no, seriously, I meant it, do it, right? And there's this moment like where he said, you've been, you're a prophet, come do this. And so he, he baptizes Jesus. And then, and then even after that, John the Baptist will say in John 3.30, he'll say that he might increase and I might decrease. And, and so John the Baptist wasn't just a prophet who did things for God. He was a prophet who truly had a heart for the Lord. And he recognized that John the Baptist needed to die, needed to crucify himself more and more. And Jesus Christ needed to live more and more. It was a decrease of John and an increase of Jesus. Hey, by the way, great kind of idea of discipleship. If in your life, if you are truly seeking that you would become less and he would become more, I really think that is like in one little text, a picture of what it means to be a disciple, to be growing in him more and more and more with our lives. So this is John the Baptist. And and so where we find ourselves with John in this, in this text is John had gone out, he'd continued to do ministry, and he was, he was captured. And in that capture, he spent, um, he spent about a year with Jesus. He spent about a year in prison underneath Herod's temples. And underneath there, what we find is that he has a tough year. And there's a weird thing said in Matthew about, about John the Baptist. Somewhere in this prison sentence, he says to some of the people who had come to visit him, hey, could you go to Jesus and could you ask him a question? Is he still the one or should we look for another? Now, this is kind of this astonishing moment, like John the Baptist. Jesus said he's the greatest prophet. There's no one of more honor born of a woman than John the Baptist. This is what Jesus will say. And so it looks seemingly like, like John the Baptist is having doubts inside of his heart. Now, I, I don't, we don't know, but what I, I, this is what I think is going on there. I think John the Baptist is kind of having this moment of like, hey, Jesus, I'm in prison and I don't want to be because Herod's crazy, and I'm probably going to die. So, like, you're healing the lame, the sick. How about me out of prison, right? Maybe you could do that. I, I think it's really a moment for John the Baptist of calling out to Jesus and saying, hey, could you meet me because this isn't going to end good for me. And what's interesting about Jesus' response was, I am healing the sick. I am proclaiming repentance. I'm proclaiming the kingdom, I'm doing what I do, and John, you're staying. Because John's destiny was to die. And John's disciples, which were many, I believe through his death, were emboldened in a way unlike any other. Much like the death of Jesus, his disciples were cowards until he died. And in his resurrection and through his filling, they became bold witnesses. And this is true for all martyrs. This isn't the only martyr. There's been martyrs, and we'll talk about some of those in a bit. But one thing that happens with martyrs is when people die for the faith, those that follow them become even more diligent toward the faith. And his destiny was death. So if you believe in some sort of prosperity gospel that says that when you receive Jesus, that all the blessings of life come flowing out to you and you have a life of perfect peace and harmony, you need to erase most of the New Testament and especially this section. Because what this section is saying is that some disciples of Jesus will die at the sword for the sake of the kingdom. 
So in this, what we see is this passage is, again, jammed between the disciples. Remember, this is kind of an intriguing place to have this insert. This, this passage is, is jammed between two sections. So last week we talked about Jesus. He sent the disciples out two by two, and they went out and they proclaimed the kingdom. He gave them everything they needed, and, and they were out doing this. And then it kind of ends. And then it says, Herod heard of these great things. And so next week, we're going to come back, and they've returned from this missionary journey. They're going to have a little bit of food, and they're going to be reporting on it, and then they're going to feed a whole lot of people. And so tucked in between here is this account of John the Baptist being beheaded. And this account, I believe, is tucked in here and, and because it, wants to, it is going to personify the cost of discipleship, what it means to genuinely and truly follow Jesus at all costs. For all of us, he is asking, Jesus isn't just asking for a part of us, he's asking for all of us. And we are each unique in the task that he has called us toward, and what will be required is is unique to each of us individually. But undoubtedly, all of us are called to complete devotion, complete consecration, complete yieldedness, complete surrender to our God to do his will for our lives at every moment, whatever the cost. So the first thing that I want to focus on, and we're going to look at three costs in this text. The first is the cost of consistency and faithfulness. The cost of consistency and faithfulness. So here in verse, um, so in verse 18, it continues. And kind of in the continuation of, I'm making sure I'm getting this right. So in verse 17, it says, For it was Herod who had sent out and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying, so he gets put in prison here because John had been saying that it was, right, had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So in this moment, for John, had, he, he, he's kind of calling him out here. He's, he's standing on biblical truth. You actually could say that John dies because of his stance on biblical marriage. Because what he's saying is, hey, you got incest going on, and this is super creepy, and you shouldn't do it, and it's against the law. And he's going to say it in, in essence to Leviticus 18, 16, 20, 21. It says, do not uncover your brother's wife. And then in 2021, it's going to say, it's impurity what you're doing. And so John is going to make a strong stance according to biblical truth. And he's going to do it to a man who doesn't know the Lord. He's saying, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So again, a little nugget in here. We should not hesitate to take a stance it is not an issue of opinion. Opinion. It is an issue of God being right. And for me and I, for this church, we will always take a stance on biblical truth. We will not be redefined by cultural standards. We will, we will take a stance on the word of God because we must. Because if we stop taking a stance on the word of God and what he calls marriage to be, we will have nothing to stand on at all. And so in this text, we see, yeah... But I want to say this, that, that even in this stance, he, and we'll see in a minute, he had favor with Herod. Even in his stance against him, he had favor with Herod. Now, he did not his wife's mother, which is a whole other thing to talk about. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John. Now, this is super peculiar. For Herod feared John. 
He's a man in prison, right? He's a man who was, um, even in his look, would have not been, um, you know, a well-groomed man. He had very little to be feared. But it says, knowing that he was, end of 20, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. There was a recognition about John the Baptist when Herod looked at him that this man was a righteous man, that this man was a holy man. There was something different about this guy. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to interview a woman named Heather Olford, and her husband was Stephen Olford. Stephen Olford was a great preacher. He preached at every kind of every denominational big platform in the 1970s and 80s. Stephen Olford was a man who stood on the word of God, who stood on truth, and he had unique favor with different groups of people. Most people may not know. Here's a cool fact about Stephen Olford. Stephen Olford was a man in the, in the 40s was preaching about how to live a life moment by moment, living by the Spirit. And in that, there was a young man, a young evangelist in the room, and he was in the back, and he listened to him preach, and he was astonished at, at, at what he was saying. He'd never heard about this living moment by moment in the Spirit, and allowing the Spirit to guide you and direct you and to live in, 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 in recognition of the Spirit day by day. This guy came up to him afterwards and he said, please teach me more of what you're talking about. That wasn't enough. And he said, Great, I, I can't meet with you tonight, but in two days, meet me at this hotel, and I'll give you, I, I have two days that I can give you. So they waited, they met, spent two days in a hotel room. That young man went out of there, went and preached that night somewhere else, and 100 people came to know Christ through his preaching. And later, thousands upon thousands upon thousands, because he spent that night, those two days, with Billy Graham. And Stephen Olford was the one who Billy Graham would attest that he had taught him that. And so I'm, I'm interviewing Heather Olford, She's, you know, you read about Stephen Olford, and he was hanging out with Mike, who would be Martin Luther King Jr. He's, you know, all these incredible people that he spent time around. So I asked this man's wife, if you could tell me one thing about your husband, what would you say? And she said, as quick as she could, he was a holy man. Not, and not he was a good husband, not he loved his kids, not, he worked really diligently in ministry, but she said he was a holy man. I mean, immediately in my, my mind, I thought, oh man, what would Deb say about me? I mean, I hope, I mean, I hope that by the, by the time I've lived this span of my life, and I've gone, I want to go first. That's how it's going to work, Deb. And that, that someone would look at my wife, and that would be the response she would give. And I don't know. I don't know if that's true of me. But I know that if I could be known as anything, a holy man would be the greatest aim in my life. When Herod, he'd feared John because he saw him as a holy man. He knew that he was messing with something more than a man, um, than, than just any other normal man. And when he, it says when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And so Herod had some sort of affinity with John the Baptist. He had some sort of leaning toward his holiness to, to the God that was in him. It was drawing Herod. And so maybe a question that we could ask in regards to the cost of consistency and faithfulness is, what is the greatest thing you possess, me and you? What is the greatest thing we possess? Is it, is it our knowledge? Is it our money? Is it our, our family, possessions, land, heirlooms, skill? What is the greatest thing you possess? Well, what you believe to be the greatest thing you possess is what you probably brag about, just so we know. 
So what we brag about, I'm the youngest of four boys, and so like my constant right sanctification is overcoming my birth order. I am the youngest in a family. And so those of you who are the youngest, we don't understand this quite. Everybody that's the like, oldest, they get like, oh, yeah, you guys are totally selfish. Right? That's like the natural thing that we talk about. But, but inside of this, the, the greatest thing that we possess right, is that, that which we talk about. And so maybe asking a question, what is the greatest thing you possess? And I would say the greatest thing that any of us possess is first and foremost our Lord. If you have given your life to him, he is the greatest possession in which you have. And the holiness that he grants to us then is, is, is inherent kind of tied in that, the greatest possession. And the thing that he works on, the deepest work he does in our life is in our character. In the character of John the Baptist, what is written here from an ungodly, very, very ungodly man, we'll see that even more so momentarily. What he saw was there was a holiness, there was a righteousness, there was something set apart. As we live our lives in the world, the greatest thing that people will see in us is a holiness that is from our God, a faithfulness, a consistency that is from our King, that we don't ebb and flow with the circumstances of life, but we move forward because we have a King who died for us and one who loves us and who has given us everything we need. See, John had been a faithful witness. He had been honest and he had taken a stance. And the greatest thing that we possess in our world is living in public and private and sacred places in all the places of life, displaying the transformation and the integrity and the character that God has placed inside of us. Moment by moment, day by day, year by year. See, I can walk up to someone and I can speak articulately and I can do all kinds of things. But if they see something else from me two days later, they will discount everything I've said. But I'm, I don't know about you, but the long game looks like consistency. It looks like holiness. It looks like righteousness. And over time, the message we speak, the lives we live, they will coincide and people will say, I may not agree with that man or woman's stance, but there's something different about them. What they believe is true. I can't argue with what they believe. I mean, I like it. And Herod and the people, they didn't like it. They lived within it. But there's a cost of consistency and faithfulness. Let's read on. Because the second thing we're going to see is the cost of the truth. The cost of the truth. Verse 21 says, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. And so Herod, here he goes, the the egomaniac that he is, and he, he says, hey, it's my birthday. Everybody come. And he brought in all of the leaders, all of the people. Everybody that was somebody is at this party. And so he brings everybody into the party, and it says, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And so his wife... Now is undoubtedly, we don't know the whole context of what was happening, but it was undoubtedly obscene and lewd, whatever it is that she was doing in front of them. And in this moment, what we see is there was, there was a party going on that was profane at every level. And so profane, right, Then the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish. And so it was so, so good and probably in his drunkenness. Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, this is a pretty astonishing statement. What he's saying is like, hey, I am so loaded. 
I have so much cash that if I gave half of my cash away, I would still be loaded. It's like this like excessive rap video, right? With like gold chains and rings and Herod, if that's a picture of Herod you want. It's a, it's a moment where he's like, check out everything I got. Nothing can stop me. I could give one of my girls half of what I got and I'd still be the most loaded man in the room. And this is where his ego just shines bright through. So in this, he, he, he makes this huge statement. And then, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. See, and remember, this is the issue she had. He was standing on truth, and she did not like John the Baptist. She wanted him in prison, but more than that, she wanted him dead. And she came in immediately with haste, 25. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guest. And so this wasn't just a statement. He had made an oath. This was a moment where he had done this publicly. Whatever you want, I'm going to give you. And he did not want to break his word to her. And so John the Baptist was about to lose his head. But Herod was about to lose more. He lost his conscience. He was a man that allowed his emotions and his gut and his desires to control him. He allowed his heart to be that which was that which guided him. Then in men's fraternity, we're going through the series that we're going through is um, don't follow your heart. And last week, Brandon was sharing with us about don't follow your heart. And really, the old way of thinking about the heart was not necessarily the heart that pumps blood, but it was the deepest place, right? The heart really would have been understood as like the, the bowels, right? And so... I've, I've been trying to apply this, and so I've been trying to love my wife with all of my bowels, like, I've been trying to tell her that, like, you know, it's like this, like, everything in my life with, it doesn't really translate very well, so I've been, I don't think I can say it anymore, but, but it's this idea in this that, that what, what, what was at the deepest place of Herod, the deepest place of Herod was himself. And he was his guide, and he was his director, and he was the one that led him. And it led him into all kinds of sinfulness, which have all kinds of consequences. And for us in this room, we may be a little bit more like Herod than we realize. Because if our emotions are our guide, if our heart is our guide, if if we are our own guides, living by our desires and our gut, I would say that in this room, one of the things, the way that we know that maybe we're not fully that is that if we were, every relationship in our life would be broken because what our gut and our heart tells us to do at times goes against the relational practices that, that, that bring any sort of stability in life. So what does it take for a man or woman not to be pushed around by our desires and wants and lose our conscience? It takes a commitment, a commitment to truth and living by it. Any person that has not committed their life to truth and living by it will be tossed to and fro by their own emotions and will pay the penalty for it. And so last, what we see is the ultimate cost of discipleship. The ultimate cost of discipleship finishes, and it says in verse 27, And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, 
they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So in this, what we see is the disciples of John. So it, it happens. The wishes are fulfilled. John the Baptist dies a most gruesome and horrific death. And in this death of John the Baptist, what happens is the men come that were his followers and care for his body even in death and bury him. But John the Baptist, he paid an ultimate price of his faith. See, John's not the only one that has paid a price for his faith. And I want to just tell you of two today. And there are, we could sit here all day and tomorrow and the next and the next telling about men and women who gave their life for the sake of the gospel. That peaceably, because they desired the message of their Savior to be known, gave of themselves for him. There's a man named John Huss in 1415 that was martyred for the faith. A few years ago, Deb and I took a group of college students to, to uh, Czech Republic, and we were there multiple times as, uh, when, when we were doing it. In the middle of Prague, there's a statue of John Huss. And <clears throat> Prague is today um, probably one of the most, one of the most ungodly places in the world that I've ever been. Um, I've, shared, I've shared about Jesus, I've shared the gospel with people in, in that area for five hours and then tried to give them a Bible, and it was like, eh, no. It's crazy, silly. I don't believe in that. But at that time, John Huss, and part of in his death, there was a great movement that broke out in, Czech, in, the, in the area in that region. The Moravian revivals happened, and some of the greatest men of faith that we read about in church history came out of this time. And John Huss was one of those men. Because of the message he proclaimed, because of what he did, he was burnt alive at the stake in the middle of Prague. And as John Huss was burnt alive in the middle of Prague, he said in his life that he was desiring to hold, to believe, and assert whatever is contained in the scriptures as long as I have breath in me. John Huss was committed to the scriptures and committed to truth, and because of that, John Huss was burned at the stake for the sake of the gospel. They say, as John Huss was martyred just as Stephen, that his face never grimaced, that it seems as though he experienced no pain as he died a peaceable death, burned alive for the sake of his Savior. 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is maybe more current and familiar to some. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wanted, knew that the people in Germany needed to be ministered to, especially they would after the war when things had to be rebuilt. In 1943, he decided that he needed to go back to Germany. He'd come to America. He was a lecturer and a teacher and a pastor, he said, I have no authenticity if I don't go, go through the struggle with those for the faith. And so he went. He cared for Jewish men and women as they were being persecuted and hurt. He had a strong faith in Jesus Christ. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer would ultimately be hung by the Nazi, by the Nazi army. And in this, Bonhoeffer would say this, to endure the cross is not tragedy. It is a suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. He also said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. These men are men that did not live some civilized, safe, sterile form of Christianity. These were men that in some ways, maybe to the known world, looked like barbarians, looked like something uncivil. 
But in them, there was a raw humility and a joyful submission to their Lord at any cost. See, the call to follow Jesus is not a simple call to eternal riches, but it's a call to discipleship, to look more and more and more like the one I love. It is a call to complete devotion to him above anything else. It is a call that at all costs, I will serve him and I will love him and I will do whatever in life for him. The question may be this morning, have you made him Lord? Lord of all. Will you this morning, if you haven't, commit yourself to him as Lord because you deeply believe that what Jesus has done is real and that there are real eternal riches with him and there is really something beyond this world that is worth living our lives for. See, I believe with John the Baptist and these men, that's what they deeply believed and were willing to put their very own life on the line for it. I don't know if that's what God will require of me or of you. But the question still remains, am I willing to lay my life down for my Lord at that level? Because I believe that far before that time of struggle came, They came to that conclusion, maybe in a room, maybe in a room like this, I don't know. At all costs, have you made him Lord? Have you committed yourself to him for the first time or again, or in greater ways this morning? Will you surrender your life to him and his ways to live faithfully for him? John the Baptist was without doubt, as Jesus said, the greatest. Might we walk in devotion as he did at all costs? But again this morning, who paid the greater cost? I think it's clear in this text who paid the greater cost. Herod did. Herod lived his life in torment. And he will live forever and eternity in torment because he rejected God. He rejected his will. And he rejected his ways. Or John the Baptist See, I think the cost for John the Baptist was small. Actually, I think there was almost no cost for John the Baptist except his life. Because in this life, he was faithful to the end with what the Lord had called him to do. And in death, he was freed from himself to worship him in eternity forever. For us in this room, there is a cost. There is a cost in our lives. If you rebel and refuse, you will reap the cost in this world and in the next. Or... Today, you will be faithful. You will fulfill his ways and his purposes, that your heart will be his, and he will grow you more and more and more. And maybe in this room, your lot will live a peaceable life, right, and die a normative death, whatever that means, in this world. Or it might mean to give your very life for him. I believe in a room like this, when God sets us apart, that is not crazy. That could be possible. But for us, we must count the cost. Let's pray together. Father, we, we believe. We believe that you sent your son into this world and that he lived and he died. And Lord, we believe that John the Baptist was a real man who prepared the way for you to come who humbly bowed his life down to you and served you unto death and was faithful to the end. 
Lord, we believe, as your scriptures say, that he was a holy man and a righteous man. And we believe that you made him to be that. So this morning, would you, would you make us holy? Would you make us righteous? Would you set us apart for your unique purposes in this world and walk down the path you've called each of us to in faithfulness? Help us not turn to the left or to the right, but to walk down that narrow road that you have plowed before us. And Lord, would you, would you secure us more and more in you? Would you help us to, to live faithfully, to cultivate our heart and our life and our relationship with you, that we might bear much fruit, endure whatever cost that comes our way. And we recognize, Lord, that there is a cost to truth. We recognize there is a cost in this world, but there is a reward forever and eternity. So, Lord, help us to move from lives that are all about us, that lived in the safety and the security and the, the prisons all of those things create in this world. Help us to let go, to grab a hold of you, and to live lives of faith, of diligence, of bravery for your name's sake in this world. That it happen in our homes, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our schools, in all places and spaces in this world, Lord, would you, would you allow your light and your love to be seen through us? So Lord, help us now as we respond, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand, as we stand, we're going to sing a song the song's titled, I Surrender All, and it's a moment where we have the altars open where you can come and kneel and pray, and it's a moment for you, maybe God's stirring in your heart to surrender in greater ways to him, or to rededicate or recommit your life in greater ways to serving him and loving him and living for him. Or maybe this morning, you've never done that, and you want to come up and just kneel down and say, Jesus, my life is yours. But as we sing this song, as you feel prompted, you can come and kneel or right where you're at, but might this be a moment where we allow God to continue to speak into us and for us to deal with what he's saying.